Let's take our Bibles and look to the second letter that Peter wrote, the second epistle of Peter. You'll find that in the New Testament towards the very end of the Bible. And if you didn't bring a Bible today, there's one probably available to you in the seat in front of you or there close by. I'm really grateful for the support that has been shown to me as we have walked through Peter's second epistle. Because Peter is addressing false teachers in a very direct way, causing me to speak candidly as well on Christianity, the state of Christianity, particularly those churches and denominations who have embraced the moral revolution, the sexual revolution that is very much strong and dominant in the culture today, as well as speaking against those who have heretical teachings like the prosperity gospel. It's important for the church to have those conversations to, to highlight those things that are contrary to God's word. Some of you have passed through churches that have had turbulency like that, where you've had false teachers, false leaders, preachers, and so you understand the severity of the issue and really the complexity of the issue when you have that kind of nature and impact of a false teacher standing in the pulpit of a church. Some of you have talked to me about carrying the burden for your family and loved ones who are involved in churches right now that have this kind of teaching going on, and it's a burden that you're carrying. As I was talking to somebody this past week who has come through a church like that, he said, Pastor, you cannot teach enough on this subject. Uh, it's, it's in me that, okay, good grief, Peter, come on, let's get on with this because I want to move past this, but... He's saying to me, uh, you can't teach enough on this because when you're in the midst of it, it's hard to see it. And then for him and his family, it was just the light came on and he realized that, hey, what is happening here is not of the scripture. And he understood that the destructive nature of that kind of teaching and so did the apostle Peter, which is why he spent uh, nearly uh, a half of this book relating to this subject. He wants us to make sure that we understand the purity of God's word is essential in the church. It's all we have, God's word. So we must keep it pure at all times. So before we get into the final chapter, chapter three, which by the way has some incredible teaching in it, uh, we're gonna spend a few more uh, minutes on this section of chapter two, which is about the characteristics of false teachers. Now, let me just go back what we have talked about previously, back in chapter 1, verse 20, just to catch the context. Uh, it says that in verse 20, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever given or produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit ensured that God's perfect word was written by these men, spoken and written by these men. He says in chapter two, verse one, but false prophets rose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. So there's the warning. Like Israel had false prophets that the enemy moved into the congregation, so the enemy moves false teachers in the church. And God's judgment against those teachers, as we have learned previously, is certain. Just as he judged those, as we said last week, who were sinful angels or those who were in the wicked ancient world of Noah or those who were in the ungodly world of Sodom and Gomorrah among Lot's days, swift 
judgment will come against those who have heresies. The Lord knows, though, how to rescue those of his own who are in the midst of trials, just as he knows how to hold on to those who are going to be held for the final judgment, so he knows how to hold those who are uh, true to faith. And he will, of course, divulge all of that in the end of time. So he says, false teachers and leaders are lustful and they despise the God-ordained authority. That's what we're going to read today. It's not just their sinful flesh that drives them. Though they claim association with Christ, they choose not to be submissive to him. It's this idea that they want to be the leader. They want to be the Lord rather than Christ himself. So Peter notes in chapter, one, chapter 2, verse 1, Anybody who is teaching destructive heresies is bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now, today's passage is going to serve as a warning for the church who might have unsaved leaders leading them and teaching them. They are playing a game of charades, spiritual charades, but it is no game. In fact, they are part of Satan's scheme to move people away from the genuineness of the gospel, thus from saving grace. And you and I know that is deadly. And so Peter is giving us a strong and firm warning. And he's saying to us, we must stay alert. Now we have unprecedented access to the Bible. Unlike any other generation, we have a proliferation of the text at our disposal at all times. You can't go anywhere at any place without God's word. Uh, you, you not only had the printed copies, multiple of them, but you also have a digital copy roaming with you all the time. So we have great access to God's word, but I, I, I also recognize along with the great access is a disproportionate amount of people who are ignorant to God's word. In fact, there is an illiteracy among scripture that is engaging in the church. It's evident that church people don't know God's word. When we invite some people to come alongside others and disciple, they'll say something like this often, you know, I just really don't know enough about the Bible. Good grief, man, you've been, married, you've been uh, given to Christ for 45 years and you don't know about the Bible yet? My guess is that you are choosing not to. And if you're choosing not to, is he genuinely your Lord? Do you really believe this word is transformative to your life? And if so, why are you not engaging in it to the point that you could communicate? So though we have great access to the word, we choose instead to binge watch Netflix and hang out on stuff that is meaningless, mindless, rather than engage God's word. And here's what Peter is saying. You not only need to know God's word, but you need to use it in battle. And the battle is coming to the church constantly. He told them that from the first century. Here we are in the 21st century. And it's still the same thing. Now, serious-minded people engage the Bible regularly. And when they're engaging the Bible, I don't mean they're just reading it, checking off that they've read it. They're engaging it. The way we say it is, you're reading it with a pencil in the hand. You're expecting God to speak to you and to move in your life, to point out things about your life. And that's worthy to make note about. 
And so we're engaging in that way. And it's not just engaging when we sit down to read God's word and study God's word, but when somebody is communicating, thus saith the Lord, you're saying, well, let me just see if that's true. And when somebody says, this is a Christian song that I'm gonna present to you, you say in engagement, well, let me just see if that's true. Does it measure up to the scripture? Does it measure by the book, the chapter, the verse, to the scripture? And if not, then we're going to distance ourselves, if not completely remove ourselves from that environment. So you and I are to be on high alert at all times when somebody is communicating God's truth, be it the pastor, the preacher, the teacher, you're holding God's word, you're reading it, you're engaging it, you're hearing what that individual is saying, and you're measuring to it. And if you'll do that, then you'll be unswayed by the heretical teachings of the day, like the prosperity gospel, which is no good news at all. And you'll be insightful, immediately reject any notion of universalism, which says, oh, God means for everybody to be saved. And you'll run when the modalist tries to diminish in some way the Trinity, some aspect of the Trinity, and you'll head for the door when the moral revolutionists or the revealists say to you, uh, we can discount that doctrine. That's not the way it is anymore. Things have changed. Times have, have evolved. And the standard of the Bible is, is shifting as the culture is shifting. No, it's not. And you'll be seriously troubled by those who tout a hyper grace. That is, they communicate and emphasize God's forgiveness and grace to the exclusion of his holiness and obedient demands for each of us. Listen, Meadowbrook, you and I need to be disciplining ourselves in this season. We need to be reading the word, knowing the word, and discussing its truths and we need to take the Bible's warnings about false teachers and prophets very seriously. And though the music and the teaching might be entertaining and it might be enjoyable, it is deadly if it is not rightly dividing the word of truth. Deadly. And so Peter hounds it again for us so that we might grab hold of this word and let it embed into us with a stark warning about what is engaging today in Western Christianity. Here's five damning and identifiable aspects of false teachers. Here's the way you know them. It won't be by the looks. Uh, Kay knows this from the outset, I have never wanted to look like a preacher. I always liked it when I was at the gym or somewhere and I was in relationship with somebody and just talking and just going about regular routines. And then later they come up to me and said, you never told me you were a preacher. <laughs> I like that. I like the shock look on their face. I like the, <laughs> I like the, the way their eyes move going back in memory. What have I said to this guy? What have I done to <laughs> I like that moment. Uh, no, really, I just want to live my life before them in, in the nature of Christ. I, I want to be identified as a Christ follower, not necessarily as a preacher. So I, I've never wanted the comb-over look. I've never wanted the ill-fitting suits. I've never wanted the elastic bands in my britches so that I could eat all the fried chicken that I ever wanted. I've never wanted to be identified, oh, that's a preacher, although that happens, it happens. Got that look, evidently. I never wanted to look like one of those guys, whoever those guys are. 
But in actuality, not all preachers look alike, and they certainly don't all sound alike, nor do they teach alike. They have varying preaching styles, various cadence and rhythms, articulation, modulations. They have a, a various way of communicating in a certain vocabulary all to themselves. The personality of the preacher shines forth as it should. None of those aspects, none of those diversities, none of those variables change in any way us in understanding whether that's a true or false prophet. Instead, the character and the content identify the false prophet. Hear me on that. The character and the content of the words of the teacher will identify him as true or false. So Peter points out, here's the character, the misguided character and the false teachings that are evident in those who lead people on a destructive path. Number one, they are bold and willfully blasphemous about God's providential order and authority. Uh, I really, really wrestled with that point for hours. This next part of scripture, I just engaged over and over stopped and prayed, wrestled with it, decided at this point I was just going to have in the margin of my Bible a big fat question mark. I've got several of those where, Lord, I just don't get this, and I'm asking you to open my understanding to it. And sometime along in Scripture, I'll read something. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that passage in Second Peter, that, that's what answers this. It'll come back. Just work the Scripture in that way. And I was doing that. And then I also called Hunter. I said, what do you think about this? Let's talk about... The, uh, the syntax, let's talk about the, the Greek in this. Why, this term glorious one, why, why is he using that? Not just the word angel. Why is there not a definite article? I'm just asking all these things and I'm asking of him and asking of other people. And he actually helped me frame up this providential order and authority. So there you go, Hunter, you're uh, preaching this message along with me. If it's no good, I'm gonna blame you in the end anyway, so... <laughs> Read the text with me in chapter 2, this, this great part of the passage, the end of verse 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. In other words, here's, here's guys who are false teachers, and yet angels don't bring judgment against them. They don't, they don't declare that. They leave that up to God. If that's the case, if angels who are in the presence of God won't bring judgment against sinners, why do you and I think we should? Just let that settle for a moment. I'm, I'm not gonna teach you on that one. He says in verse 12, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. Boy, it's sort of hard, hard to grow a church on passages like that, isn't it? Challenging, isn't it? So Peter's noting here that false teachers are bold and they are willful. That is, they're arrogant and daring. In his time, some blasphemed the glorious ones, meaning that they slandered and profaned angelic beings. With pride and self-centered arrogance, they promoted themselves above angels. 
But you and I know from Psalm 8, 5 that angels are actually above us in their nature. That is, we were created a little lower. We don't have the power that they have. We don't have the means that they have. Bible commentators understand this verse differently. And as I said, I spent a good bit of time pondering and praying over this part of the passage. What does this mean, glorious ones? That's uh, translated holy angels. Some of them are saying holy angels. Some of them are saying, no, these are actually fallen angels, demons. And yet they still retain the divine nature that God gave them when he created them. I really think it's both. Nonetheless, Peter concludes that false teachers blaspheme about matters which they are ignorant regarding the angelic beings. They are daring in their authority that they claim to have over them, over the demonic forces of hell, rebuking and even demanding that they do as they command. You've heard false teachers do that. They rebuke the devil, they rebuke demons, they demand them to do this or that, and never in scripture do you find that to be the cadence by which Christians live their life. In Jude 9, we have this fascinating account of Michael, the archangel, who is contending, warring, if you will, with Satan over the body of Moses. What a fascinating part of scripture. And that goes on for some time until God gives him victory over that. And even in that moment, Michael did not rebuke Satan for that. In fact, he said, the Lord rebuke you. But yet here you have false prophets and teachers who are willful, bold and willful to think that they can rebuke and they can exercise authority over those supernatural beings. What you and I should do in that moment is move toward the one who has already proven to be victorious and supreme over those beings and ask that Jesus himself would intervene, ask that he would bring the rebuke, ask that he would bring the demise of that event. So Jesus is proven in that way. He's our savior and he's our advocate. We should be moving toward him in those moments. But false teachers are bold and willful and they act impulsively like an animal would, claiming that they can have even a higher ranking and authority over those angels. In contrast, Peter writes, though greater and mighty in power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. In other words, angels know they are to stay in their lane. And so should we. What is our lane? Our lane is to line up right behind Jesus Christ and let his authority be that authority ruling over us and all that come in, in interaction to us. In comparison, Peter likens these people to bold, these willful, bold, uh, false teachers who arrogantly judge. He likens them to irrational animals who act on impulse rather than rational thought and a contemplation of the word of God. In other words, they'll respond and react rather than to what does God say about this? What is the word demonstrating to me? What is the example that I see in God's word? So they don't govern themselves with a holy conscience and with God's holy word. Instead, they act re just reflectively or, or, or uh, reactively in their flesh. So Peter says the one thing you can do 
And seeing these false teachers is to look at them and see if they are bold and willfully blasphemous, out of order to the authority that God has placed in creation. Secondly, they revel openly with an insatiable desire for sin. He says in verse 13, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. Now, we understand that sinners love the cover of darkness. However, as the culture degrades and the heart of the sinner grows more and more hard, they don't want to limit what they're doing in sin just to the hours of darkness. So they'll bring it into the light. They become more bold in that. So Peter is noting that false teachers do the same thing. What they once concealed, they now do openly with other people. What was once secret is now not secretive. And they do that in a way to encourage people to join them in the sin. So it's not just something that I'm trying to hide, it's something that I'm actually saying, come, let's do this together. And so the false teacher is leading them in that way. And Peter calls them blots and blemishes. I, I hate to be gross, but this is a sort of a, a text that points to gross things uh, because it's the nature of the false teachers. Here's what he's saying. They are like open sores and festering disease wounds. Now that puts a, a picture in your mind, doesn't it? He says that's exactly what these false teachers are. That's the very opposite of Jesus, isn't it? Because we know Jesus is characterized as the spotless lamb of God who is unblemished. But those who are acting and talking contrary to him and his teaching, they are blots and blemishes. They're charlatans who give themselves away by their conversation and by their eyes. If you're wondering about the false teachers, those false leaders in the church or in Christianity today, watch them and listen to them. Watch what they're doing in the open. Listen to their words. And here's what Peter says, watch their eyes. Now, I'm not gonna have time to go back into this. We've, we've taught this text numbers of times. But here's what Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Watch, listen to their words because it's exposing their heart. And he also says in Matthew chapter six, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So listen to what they're saying and watch their eyes because the eyes are gonna reveal what's going on in the heart. I've read that the ancient Greeks believed that they could follow a man's eyes and they know that those eyes would lead to the hidden desires of that man's heart. Where do your eyes constantly go? When you're meeting somebody, where do your eyes go? When you're coming into a crowd, where do your eyes go? When you're walking into a public place, what are your eyes fixated on? What can you not gravitate toward? That's the desire of the heart. So that's why Jesus is saying the eyes, they're the light, they're the lamp to the whole body. What you're choosing to focus on is what your body will be. 
So Peter warns that false teachers have eyes that are full of adultery. They have an insatiable desire for sin. So they're on the prowl. They're constantly looking for an opportunity to woo somebody that's susceptible, an unsteady soul, if you will. I should warn us that predators can spot the vulnerable. I should also remind us that as a church collectively and individually, if you see something, say something. Somebody has that wondering eye, somebody you feel might be trying to woo you, groom you. Somebody's talking about things that shouldn't be talked about. Somebody that's moving towards sin and you know they're trying to woo you into that same movement. Don't just resist them, say something to us. Because we're looking, we're looking for the wolves that come in the sheep. We want to hold a staff that we might get rid of them to identify them and to keep them away from the vulnerable sheep in the congregation of Meadowbrook. Unfortunately, we've had to do that before and we will do it again. But you've got to be alert to that. It's not just that false teachers teach falsely. False teachers teach falsely and they have eyes for adultery and they have an insatiable desire for sin and they're looking for the vulnerable in their false teaching. And they want to draw you to them so they do it in the public. They do it in the open as if it's no big deal. It's a big deal, all right? Number three, they train themselves in greed, crafting their message and ministry for personal gain. Look in verse 14. They have our hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. He was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Peter is telling us that false teachers are motivated by personal gain, so they craft their message and their ministry so that they might maximize their personal benefit. I really think that's the reason why prosperity gospel is so heralded by people. It has less to do about you being prosperous and a whole lot more about them being prosperous. It's just the way, the nature of the sin. Uh, they're, they're very good and coy at what they do in charading people, making them appear to be something that they're actually not, but it's all for their own gain. Now, at Meadowbrook, uh, we, we practice and teach the whole counsel of God's word. We do that purposefully because we don't want to be subject to the idea of I'm going to choose the topics and I'm going to choose the subjects. Can I tell you, if I was choosing the topics and I was choosing the subjects, I wouldn't be teaching in Second Peter today. I'd be teaching on something that you'd walk out and say, wow, that, that's so encouraging. Thank you, pastor. What a blessing you are to me today. You have made my day. That's what I'd be doing. But that's the reason why I'm not the Holy Spirit. Because that would be foolish, wouldn't it? To only tell you the things that are good and building up and encouraging and not warning you of the things that are deadly and destructive. The things that will take you down a path toward destruction. What if I didn't warn you of those things? So it's not up to me or anybody else to determine the subject. We take it book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And it forces us to go through very difficult passages. Not one that you might one, two, skip a few. 
but that you would stick with every verse as it comes along and just moving through it, just trusting the work of the Spirit of God to bring truth and shaping our hearts. So we're not silent on those issues that the Bible raises. Even though the culture might pressure us to believe one way or another or might want to silence us, we are not going to do that. I can tell you expository preaching is the way to go because it forces us to teach through truth. But you will not find false teachers practicing expository preaching. They're just not going to do it. They discount or deny parts of the Bible and sometimes they ignore them altogether and they come across one then they'll reframe it and mischaracterize it as being something that it is not. They give people what they long to hear and what they will receive more reward for the people hearing it. And there's nothing about that is framed up in truth. I once talked to a gentleman whose friend was a neighbor to a very prominent pastor in the, in the state of Alabama. And he teaches a, a prosperity gospel. And I, I don't mean this in a, in a positive way. He's very good at what he does. He's very good at communicating the untruth. So I asked him, what does your neighbor say about him as a, as a person, as a neighbor? What's he like? And he responded with a word that I had at the time not yet heard. He said, he's bougie, Randy. I'm like, okay, you're going to have to help me on that one. Uh, I feel like I've got a decent vocabulary, but bougie I've never heard of. And so he enlightened me. He said, oh, he lives this life of wealth. He lives in the, in the way of the upper class, and he wants you to know that. Bougie. I can tell you that's not a compliment for a preacher. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that a pastor or a preacher cannot have material blessings. In fact, quite the contrary. The scripture says, if you've got a preacher that handles the word well, then give him double honor. Pay him double. So it's not like the, the Bible is saying, uh, make sure your preachers don't have money. In fact, we can find that there can be great prosperity among people who teach God's word. Maybe they're savvy in business. Maybe they are disciplined in the way they handle finances. Maybe the church, like you, is just really generous towards their pastor. That should not stop the fact that my number one job is to be a servant, not to be served. It shouldn't alter the fact the way I view myself. I view myself coming into this place as a servant of the Most High God to bear forth good to his people. It shouldn't stop me from taking out the trash when the trash needs to be taken out, picking up the paper when it's in the hallway as I pass by it or on the sidewalk when I come in. It doesn't stop the fact that I'm a servant because I serve on behalf of the chief servant, Jesus Christ himself. So I'm grateful for that. But I should never, ever have this position so that I might gain financially, that that would be my motivation. Now, if this sermon is boring to you, you might want to move over to Numbers 22 because there is a really interesting text, a scripture there. But if this sermon is not boring to you, go to it some other time. Numbers 22 because the people were moving toward the promised land, the people of Israel, and they had encamped on the plains of Moab, just on the other side of the Jordan River near Jericho. And the Moabites were nervous about this. And Balak, the king of the Moabites, was, 
was wanting to go out and to defeat them, but he had heard what the people of, of God had done to the Amorites, and he did not want that same thing to happen to him. So he hears there's a prophet for hire whose name is Balaam. And he thinks, well, if I go and pay Balaam some honor and some money, make him wealthy, then I can get him to curse the people of Israel and I, the king of Moab, will be able to have victory over them and it will not be my demise like it was the Amorites. And Balaam was intrigued by the offer. In fact, he wants to figure out how I can do this. Uh, here, come spend the night, he says to the messengers. Let's, let's just give me time to think about this. And what he's wanting to know is, how can I bring this about? How can I do this without being ratted out? And the next day, another offer comes. As the ante is upped. And if you know the narrative of that passage, he is determined to do this, just can't quite figure out exactly how to bring it about. And while he's on his way, his own donkey ends up rebuking him. And in the end, he doesn't curse Israel like Balak wanted. In fact, God makes sure that he blesses Israel three times. What we're discovering in that is Balaam was not a man who was driven in the honor of God, nor was he a man driven by the word of God. In fact, he was a man that was driven for personal gain. And if you're a church leader and your drive is for personal gain, you are no better than a man who has been rebuked by an ass. It wasn't just his financial gain, it was his sexual perversion as well. Not many people think about Balaam in this way, but actually in the end, it was Balaam who was insinuating to the people, oh, it's perfectly fine to marry the Moabites and the Midianites. But God had distinctly told them not to do so. He was opening the avenue for them to have sexual immorality, which would result in bringing them to idolatry, which would result in them being cursed to hell. You see how false teachers work? They're given in self-interest against the word of God for self-gain and sexual immorality, and they draw as many people as they can. Boy, that's because their master is the devil. You think false teachers are something to play around with? You think music like Bethel out of Redding, California is something to be listening to when you know the leadership and the, the leaders of the church and the pastor are false teachers? You think that's something to be played with? You think it's uh, entertaining when today's genre of Christian music sort of makes you feel good, but yet you have no idea if the words are true? I'm telling you, Peter is saying to us as church, what are you doing? Do you not recognize the destruction that these people are on and the way that they're trying to woo you and all this seeming lighthearted ways? It's a big deal. That's why Peter is harping on this over and over and over. And that's why I am as well. I'm trying to move more quickly, but I know I'm struggling here. Number four. They are spiritually dry, and though they speak of refreshment, they have none to offer. Look what he says in verse 17. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm, for, 
For them, the gloom of utter destruction has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. If Peter lived in Alabama, he would say this. False teachers are like an August, summer August day when the rain is so close you can smell it, but it just brings a trace while the sun is shining, which in the 90 degrees makes the heat index value go to 110 because suddenly the humidity goes to 100%. Peter is saying they appear to bring refreshment, but actually what they're doing is bringing the misery of Alabama humidity on an August afternoon. They have nothing to offer. They can't offer you refreshment because they have no refreshment in and of themselves. These are people who need the gospel and the new life that is afforded to them by the gospel, but yet they have no gospel, therefore they make up their own and call it in the same way that you and I would call the living word of God. They live under the weight and the sin and the judgment that is against them and the consequences of that. And there are people in their congregations that live under that as well. And so they are people with addictions and brokenness and emotional strife and broken relationships and on and on and on, the things that occur when we live sinfully. So they're vulnerable people who are just hoping for some refreshment. And some guy begins to talk about refreshment, but instead he's just an August humid day and yet they listen as if this is the moment that I've been hoping for. It's not the moment. People are in desperate need of the gospel. And so they listen to someone who claims to have life, but yet there's no life in them. Their water is springs, mist before a storm that never comes. And they just add to life's misery and they impact those people even more negatively. No wonder Peter says, for them is coming the gloom of outer darkness. No wonder he warns. And so false teachers cannot offer God's word. They can't offer God's newness of life to the vulnerable because they don't possess it themselves. And so they have nothing to offer Instead, they draw the needy into a pit, a pathetic way of coaching them in life with the equivalency of spiritual self-help guides. One of the miserable, ridiculous examples of this is Joel Osteen, who says that this could be your best life now. I concur with one who said, this can only be your best life now if hell is your future. Don't fall for it. Don't buy the book. Don't tune in. Don't quote the quotes. Don't fall for it. And then finally, they are slaves of corruption who attempt to lure others. Here's the way he ends the chapter. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the last state 
has become worse for them than the first. In other words, they, they've been in the circle where God's word is proclaimed and they hear that Jesus is Lord and they hear that he is the Savior, but they don't, they don't uh, have rescue. They don't have a, a new life given to them, a new birth given to them. They're not regenerative by the Holy Spirit. And so they circle back, he says. In verse 21, they're even worse than when they started for it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What, a, what the true proverb says has happened to the, the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. If I were gonna try to summarize it, it would be this. There is no peace without the Prince of Peace. And there is no great liberation without the liberator, Jesus Christ. And if you're some preacher who's proclaiming anything else without the Prince of Peace and the great liberation that is ours in the Savior, Jesus Christ, then there's no offering of new life. False teachers claim to offer people freedom, but they themselves remain enslaved in sin and death. And they do so because they have rejected the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the only savior and the only reconciler. Sadly, fake Christian leaders may promote programs and have platitudes that polish people's external lives. They can change some behavior and maybe they'll do some service projects and maybe they'll even come into a service and raise their hands and sing loudly with their voices. But if they don't experience the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, then they are not gonna have freshness of life, newness of life. They remain dead in their sins, not alive to Jesus Christ. So my friends, not everything that is called Christian is of Christ. This is Peter's words in today's message. You can have much that's heralded that is devoid of truth and faith and salvation. Genuine salvation always has a transformative effect. If you're not transformed, then you're not saved. If you're not walking in freedom, you have no freedom to offer anybody. And so he's pointing that out. So having not experienced the new life that is available in Christ, these spiritual fakes continue to spiral in their sin. They can't get rid of their sin. They just go back to it over and over and over. Very graphically, Peter says, they're like dogs who just keep on going back to what made them sick in the first place. They're like pigs who can clean up and then go right back into the mire. Maybe you find yourself in that kind of vicious cycle of sin. You sought moral reform and personal improvements, hoping that life would get better for you, but you, you just remain entangled in the sin. I can tell you that only Jesus Christ will be able to overcome that sin. Only the imputation of righteousness can bring transformation to you. Only life from one who has been saved from above and given new life from above, a new nature, a holy nature, can actually walk in that holiness. It's not about you cleaning up. It's not about you getting your life right. It's about you coming under the grace of Christ, totally trusting in him alone, and then rescue, being rescued by his great salvation and then making your pledge, oh, for the rest of my days, I walk under your lordship. If you're my savior, if you're my advocate, you are my Lord. I choose to walk in that truth. 
And then they eagerly and aggressively engage God's word and other people and they walk step in step with the spirit of God and the people of God. I can tell you if you're here today and you're in that spiral, there's a way out today. Jesus can arrest that. He can break that. And he can make all things new. But you gotta put your full faith and trust in him, the Savior acknowledging his truth. Now, obviously, that's a challenging message. I probably have spent more hours on this message than I have in the last month combined. Just almost every day, every hour in the office, crunching that text. And the reason why is because it comes with significant weight for the preacher. I always want to rightly divide the word of truth, but I can tell you this word was like a mirror to my soul this week. I couldn't help but say, Lord, if it were not for your grace, look at where I would be. Oh, Lord, don't let me go here. Let me finish well. Let me live well and finish well. And where do you find any of this muck in me? Lord, please draw it to my attention that I might bring it before the Savior, the one who can cleanse me of unrighteousness, forgive me, reset me. And for any of our staff, I pray the same thing. For all of our life group teachers and for all of you who are disciples, for you, that we would be in light, that we would have the right word and that it would be evident in the character and the content by which we live and speak. Let's pray together. Lord, as I looked upon the faces of the people here, I just reminded how much I loved them. And if I loved them that much, I can only imagine how much you loved them. And so... Like a father who warns a child, you have given us a clear and direct warning today. You've told us how to identify those who would bring hurt and calamity and destruction into our lives with words and music. And I pray that we would heed the warning. Help us, Lord, to be pure. Keep us from the way of the evil one. Keep the evil one from us. Let Meadowbrook be known as people of your word. And it would be evident in our lives, in our words, in our actions, the intention of our heart, the roaming of our eyes. Help it to be true, Lord, that this church is hard after Christ as he has been hard after us. I pray this word would bring glory and honor to you, purifying your church and your people. In Jesus' name, amen.